Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Richard Dawkins. I assume most of you know who he is, but in case you've been living under a rock, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist and emeritus fellow at Oxford University. And if I listed all the awards he's received in his lifetime, we'd never get to the interview. His books include The Selfish Gene, The Extended Phenotype, The Blind Watchmaker, The God Delusion, Unweaving the Rainbow, and many others. His latest book is called Flights of Fancy, in which he explores and explains the phenomenon of flight, both in the animal world and in man-made technology. Uh, We didn't get to discuss this book in this episode, but I really recommend you all check it out. Topics we discuss here include technological progress, whether race is a social construct or biological reality, the mystery of consciousness, the concept of a meme, which Richard invented, religion and its relationship to a happy life, whether wokeness plays the role of a religion in people's lives, and finally, Richard gives his advice to up-and-coming scientists. So without further ado, Richard Dawkins. Okay, Richard Dawkins, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you very much indeed. So normally with my guests, I would start by asking them to give a summary of their biography and how they came to sort of care about the issues that they do. But with you, that seems rather pointless as pretty much everyone in my audience knows exactly who you are and most of the basic facts of of your biography. So it's, you know, it's hard to know where to start. I've been a fan for a long time. You are one of the greatest science communicators and science writers ever. And this is, you know, your reputation precedes you. You, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed your books from the selfish gene to the extended phenotype, the blind watchmaker, the God delusion. And, you know, to me, the selfish gene in particular still to this day stands out however many years later. What, what is it? Almost, almost 50 years 45, later? I guess. Yeah. 45 years later as the most accessible, but while remaining deep, explanation of natural selection and the gene-centered view of evolution. And it's, it's remarkable in an ecosystem where books are born and can become irrelevant two years later, uh, that a book, you know, remains so readable and, and relevant and accessible. So that's all just, you know, heaping praise on you uh, that you, that I'm sure you've received from many avenues, but it's, it's all to say, it's just an honor to get you on. Thank you very much. So it is hard to know where to start with you, but I, I am curious, just like what you've been up to you know, the past few years, what have you been interested in? What have you been paying attention to on a day-to-day basis? What's your life like? Book. My most recent book is Flights of Fancy, which is a book for young people about flight, the evolution of flight in animals, in all the four main groups of animals that have developed flight, and also in humans, of course, in, in human technology. The 
technical problems that face a creature that needs to fly. So that's the most recent book. The one before that was Books Do Furnish a Life, which was a collection, an anthology of my previous journalism and previous book reviews, things connected with books, writing connected with books, book reviews, forwards to books, afterwards to books and things. I've written a couple of autobiographies, An Appetite for Wonder and Reef Candle in the Dark, which are my two memoirs, my two autobiographies about my life. Outgrowing God was a kind of young person's version of the God delusion, I suppose. Those are, those are my most recent books. So I went out on Twitter to see what people were most interested in you and I talking about. And one of the topics was a question about technological progress and the progress that we are likely to make as a race. There's this view among people like David Deutsch and others working on artificial intelligence or integrating the brain with technology, such as Elon Musk's Neuralink project. There's an attitude among many people in that world that eventually we are likely to make any kind of progress that's compatible with the laws of physics. You know, imagine super intelligent AI and picture a kind of Star Trek reality where we've economic scarcity is just a thing of the past. And we've, through the attainment of knowledge, have figured out how to do the most with the least amount of resources and how to do anything that isn't ruled out uh, by the laws of physics. And my perspective on that attitude has always been that isn't our progress going to run up against the basic fact of evolutionary psychology, that we are not built to understand and manipulate the universe, but to survive in a very narrow slice of the universe. And so I'm curious how you as an evolutionary biologist think of the really optimistic perspective on how much progress we'll make. I sympathize with with your point of view on that. On the other hand, isn't it remarkable that although we were built by natural selection to survive in a kind of Serengeti-like environment, hunting and gathering, and nothing else. Isn't it remarkable that nevertheless, we've managed to do quantum theory, relativity, higher mathematics. So somehow the human brain does seem, at least some human brains, do seem capable of far outreaching uh, what we were evolutionarily designed to do. So that's, on the one hand, that suggests that the speculators that you've mentioned are right, that anything that's physically possible, we will eventually be able to do. On the other hand, where I think evolutionary psychology really might kick in is in the political will to do it. And it could be that although the sort of scientific elite among us, by in which I don't include myself, by the way, I'm t- talking of physicists like David Deutsch, whom you, you mentioned, Max Tegmark, people like that, that they will be pushing up into sort of furthest limits, furthest reaches of what's possible. On the other hand, humanity being fallible and being uh, political may uh, never achieve what, what we are potentially capable of. I mean, for example, climate change is a thing that worries most of us. And although it may well be that if we deploy the full power of science, we can get around these problems, nevertheless, we need the political will to do it. And maybe that the barrier will come from the political will. 
So if we were to somehow figure out how to solve the political problems, is it your view that the amount of progress we'll make in the next few hundred years may be really in line with what folks like Elon Musk and the rest think, think is possible? But I think so. But, but it's a very big if because, mm-hmm. uh, because you've got people like Donald Trump in the, in the world with power. And so it is a very big, big if. So one solution that would suggest itself based on what you just said is for billionaires to essentially steer around the political obstacles by doing things privately. Elon Musk would be the, the best example, but there are, there are others like Patrick Collison and other very scientifically literate and curious billionaires that want to be on the forefront of progress to just fund and just put their shoulder to these kinds of projects. Does that seem like a plausible solution? I think it does. Yes. I think, I mean, you've got Elon Musk, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson. There are quite a few who are, who are very scientifically savvy. And Charles Simone, there are many like that. And so I suppose they could do, yes. So one area where I fairly persuaded that the limits of our evolutionary minds are preventing us from understanding an issue, or, or at least might be, is the problem of consciousness. Why, why it, there is something it's like to be this hunk of machinery, to be these survival machines, as you call them in, in the selfish gene. There, there's nothing in the theory of evolution or in the laws of physics, as I understand them, that would explain why it feels like something to be a brain as opposed to a table, which I assume there's nothing it's like to be. Although the further into this conversation, the more you question even those kinds of assumptions. Is this something you've given much thought to? I have tried to. I I don't, I mean, I think it's it's a baffling problem. It seems to me that a, a zombie, a robot could be programmed and there's no reason why Natural selection could not have programmed a robot-like creature to do everything that we can do in the way of behaving in such a way as to survive, in the way of analyzing sense data and controlling muscles, intelligent way, actually. Artificial intelligence, as we know it so far, is, I'm convinced, not conscious. So the, the great chess programs, the Go program, the great artificial intelligence programs are so far not conscious. And they don't know what it's like to be a computer. They don't know what it's like to be a chess-playing computer. And I suppose as a Darwinian, I'm committed to the view that since we are conscious, there must have been a Darwinian survival value in it, that an unconscious, intelligent robot wouldn't do the job as well as a conscious one, which is what we are. But I don't really understand why, and I don't think anybody else really does. Doesn't the existence of things like locked-in syndrome where there's a what looks to be basically a coma patient that can't move or almost do anything but we know once they wake up from the coma that they were actually conscious the whole time wouldn't that undermine the assumption that the computer programs are definitely not conscious because how would we know how would we know indeed yeah. um i mean th- there's no doubt about it that we are conscious i mean i know i'm conscious and i suspect you are because you know, we're, we're similar and we come from the same source. Yes, I, mean, I think locked-in syndrome is interesting from that point of view. So as a Darwinian, it would make sense or one would believe that consciousness must have some survival value 
but it's it's certainly hard to see what it would be. I guess, you know, I'm influenced by the philosopher Colin McGinn on this point, who essentially makes the point that just like certain animals don't grasp the concept of reflection because it's just beyond their ken. So when they see their reflection in a mirror, they just can't and are never going to understand that that's them. Consciousness is something like that to humans. Like it's it's just beyond our ken so that we're probably not even asking the right questions and even the smartest among us actually aren't capable because we're not built to understand what's true at bottom there. Is that a thesis you're familiar with? I am. Um, I, I mean, Colin McGinn is, I suppose, one extreme of those who feel that uh, the problem is just simply too difficult that we might as well simply give up. It's a bit defeatist. I mean, it, people always have that kind of defeatist attitude. They've never solved any problems. But admittedly, it is an extremely difficult problem. So I do sympathize with it. As an evolutionist, I agree that we were certainly never designed to understand not just consciousness, but modern physics. And yet we do. But I would take a kind of Colin McGinn line when it comes to the possibility there may be things in physics that we were never designed to understand. Maybe that we've already reached the limit, quantum theory and relativity, entanglement, things like that are already pushing up against the limit of what the human brain can understand. Um, I mean, or I think already quantum theory, we don't understand. We just know that it produces predictions which are accurate to a formidable number of decimal places. And I think the same may be true of consciousness, that that we simply are not built to to understand it. So totally different question. Looking back on your life, what piece of advice would you give to your 35-year-old self? Say you're, you're, you know, the, the selfish gene is coming out tomorrow and you can tell that version of Richard Dawkins, one thing, what would it be? Don't waste so much time as doing computer programming. I've wasted an enormous amount of my life because I love it. And mm-hmm. I became addicted to computer programming. And uh, it was it, it consumed not just a lot of my time, but a lot of my intellect as well. And But the fact is that it's, it's a thing that other people do much better. And so I would have done better to have done more biology. Interesting. So you you regret spending too much time doing computer programming because it's a kind of hobby rather than a Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. regret's a strong word because it, mm. it was enormous fun. And, mm. and I think it did help me to think about certain things. For example, it helped me to think about language. I mean, I, I think I understand Chomsky better because I was a computer programmer, if I could put it that way. Okay, so another topic that people on Twitter wanted us to discuss. There is a longstanding debate among biologists, but also anthropologists, about whether race is real or a social construct. And uh, I can feel my blood pressure go up simply broaching the topic because it's a third rail. And and it, you know, it makes perfect sense that it's a third rail because in the 20th century, the Nazis committed a genocide based partly on this belief. And many governments, including the U.S. government, instituted eugenics policies. My great-grandmother was, was sterilized in Puerto Rico as a result of one of these policies in the eugenics era. Nevertheless, I think people of goodwill ought to be able to ask the question, which is, given that When our ancestors migrated out of Africa, many groups of them were geographically isolated for long enough to develop all of the all of the differences in appearance 
that makes someone like me look different than, than someone like you. And, you know, the question whether that isolation was, was long enough and the evolution divergent enough to justify biologically valid categories, whether we want to call them races or populations, it seems people of goodwill who are not Nazis ought to be able to ask that question and explore its, its implications, whether medical or, or otherwise. So what do you make of that debate? Okay, I, I mean, I quite agree with you. I, I think the fact that such appalling things were done by the Nazis and by the eugenic sterilization movements in the United States in the early part of the 20th century and so on, the fact that that happened doesn't nullify the validity of the concept of race. I mean, it's obvious that geographically located populations of humans, excuse me, I'm going to just mute while I... It's obvious that there are geographically separated groups of humans who have different um, genetic clusters in common. Now, what is true is that the variance between hu- humans, between different different races, is much less than the variance within within races. In other words, one way it's been put is that if you wiped out all of humanity except one subpopulation, most of the variation would be preserved. In other words, most of the available human variation is present in all different races. That doesn't mean that race is invalid. Race is a, is a valid concept. It is real. There really are differences which are correlated with each other, skin color, shape, various, various different things, blood groups. All these things are correlated with each other. And so it, I think it's nonsense to say that race is a social construct. Race is a real biological phenomenon. The important thing is not to base any decisions, to base any policies upon that, which I think that's truly wicked. And that's what was wicked about the Nazis and was wicked about the eugenic sterilization movements of the 1920s and so on. So the way I view this, and I've looked at papers that have been written ever since the genome was sequenced a couple decades ago, which have allowed scientists to look at a representative sample of genomes from all across the world, identify the locations in the genome where people have different genes, because most spots in the genome were all the same. But isolating those spots which vary, coming up with an index of similarity where my and my sister's genome would score as very highly similar, whereas mine and yours, for instance, would score as relatively different. And then doing a standard clustering analysis to see how clustered the data are. And on a pot, many people are going to be listening to this. So if you're not familiar with what it means for there to be a clustering analysis, you know, imagine you were measuring people's height and weight, just two variables, and you were to measure everyone in America and plot them on an XY graph where say like X is the height and Y is the weight you probably wouldn't see all that much clustering. It would just look like a mess of evenly distributed dots. Now, say you were to do the same thing, but just look at a class of kindergartners and the NBA. Now you're going to find two completely separate clusters where the kindergartners are going to be clustered in a circle around here and the NBA is going to be over here and there's going to be no overlap. And then in a third scenario, you might have a group that clusters but has significant overlap in the clusters that are nevertheless visible. And from the papers I've looked at, race or populations tend to look like that third scenario where there is visible clustering in the data, but significant overlap, no discrete boundaries 
so that tens or, or maybe hundreds of millions of people will be more genetically similar to some members of other races than to some people in their own race. That's certainly true. Yes, undoubtedly. But there will be certain characteristics like skin color, which will, be, which will separate out geographical populations. Mo- most characteristics won't, but certain things will. And th- you will find correlated characteristic, which will do that. So there's a separate question here, which is whether discussion of these kinds of issues can actually cause harm to society. This is a, is everything true worth discussing or worth amplifying? And there is one set of studies that really brought this question to my attention recently by a researcher named Brian Donovan, where he took a group of eighth or ninth graders, presented them with a passage on sickle cell, which essentially said that black people are more likely to get sickle cell for these reasons. And then presented them with an identical passage that talked about sickle cell in in race-neutral terms. That just said, these many Americans get sickle cell because their ancestors were from regions of the world that had lots of malaria. So there was one race-neutral version version of the passage and one that was framed in terms of race. And they were both true. And then he tested those two sets of kids as to whether they believed race was a sort sort of essential character trait and whether racial inequality was due to genetics and found that there was a significant difference in the group that that had just been read the racialized the one that was framed racially which would suggest that at least it's possible that talking about these facts in a way that puts at the forefront the racial differences even if true could result in a net increase in beliefs about racial difference and racial essentialism that we all want to minimize. So I guess the basic question is, are there things that are true but not worth discussing? And how do you deal with that? I didn't quite understand the problem with the sickle cell case because, for example, if um, doctors need to to know whether somebody's likely to have sickle cell, I mean, to know skin color will will be correlated with the probability of getting sickle cell. Is there a problem with that? I don't really get understand. Or is it just that it raises the consciousness of people in a way that's superfluous, that's unnecessary? Yes, it it would be the second thing. There's no problem with the fact as stated. It's that on a secondary test, the kids that were given the passage that way would answer separate questions and score high on measures of racial essentialism, right? Like the notion that races have discrete essences that are shared by all members of the race and and not others and other problematic beliefs. Yes. So it's of a piece with those psychological studies where subjects are primed by a Mm -hmm. story and then that changes their attitude to a different point. Yes. I mean, well, you asked the more general question, are there some things in science that we should not study? Mm -hmm. That was the more general question you you were asking. Yes. I suspect that there are. Yes. I mean, I I think there are certain questions that it's not worth studying because there's, it, would not, it wouldn't affect anything we do, whatever we find out about in those subjects. So they should be irrelevant. They, should not, uh, they shouldn't um, impinge on anything that we do. And so it's not worth studying them. There's been a line of argument over the past few years, which has seen the development of wokeness in the past five or six years as 
a consequence of the decline of Christianity and religion in the culture. And the argument basically says there is a religion-shaped hole in the human psyche. And as Christianity has declined in the West, something has now, there's been a vacuum that something now has to fill. And that's been filled with the belief that essentially the, the social justice catechism, that speech is harm and that only members of your race can truly understand your suffering and straight white men are evil and at the top of an oppressive hierarchy and that group traits can be applied to, to individuals and I can dismiss what you're saying because of your identity. And this whole thing has in some ways had a, a religious character to it. You've seen the development of things like White Fragility and Robin D'Angelo, where her best-selling book is preaching this kind of masochism, this kind of masochism on the part of, of white people to constantly apologize for the original sin of their racism. Whether original not, sin is exactly right. I mean, it's spot right. on. That's what, yeah, quite right. So all of this, has, I mean, part of this has been inflected with a critique of of the quote new atheists of, of yourself and and Dennett and Sam Harris and uh, Hitchens by saying, well, doesn't this prove that you can't just get rid of religion because what might replace it could be worse? What do you make of that? If there's a if the idea is that there's a religious shaped a religion shaped hole which needs to be filled, I think that's condescending and unnecessarily contemptuous of humanity. It would be pathetic if humans had a need to have, if they've lost Christianity, say they have to have something else. They can't just take the world as it is, take reality as it is, take science as it is. They have to fill it with something equally silly, having given up Christianity. I think that will be, I think that, that's a condescending attitude to humanity. And I would very much hope it's not true. I would, I would prefer that when people lose religion, when people lose supernatural religion, they do not fill it with some other notion of original sin, as you put it uh, quite correctly, but that they might fill it with an, a love of truth, a love of science, a love of the study of reality. So I guess a related question here is, well, let me start by just saying this. You know, I was raised with no religion at all, and I never missed it as a result. But I talked to lots of people that were raised religious and then, you know, later either became skeptical or something like that. And often I think they have the feeling of some sort of sacredness melting away. It's like, you know, or at least when, when times get tough, they wish that they could turn to God or turn to religion for some kind of solace. And you know, again, that's something I've never felt, I think, partly because I never had it to begin with. And, and all, life always seemed quite beautiful and sacred to me on its own. But to those people that do feel some sense of loss at the religious character of, of the world, what do you have to say to that feeling? Well, like you, I empathize with the idea of some a feeling of sacredness. But to me, I get that from science. I get that from contemplation of the vastness of the universe and the, the vastness of life's complexity. I don't feel any need to replace one rather foolish kind of religion with another rather foolish kind of religion, which I think the sort of guilt trip, which is dinned into Christians, you're born in sin if you're, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a Catholic, born in sin. The very moment you're born, you have the sin of Adam 
inherited in, in you. Once you got rid of that, to replace it with a different kind of guilt trip, which is what the original sin of white guilt is, is about, then I don't have any respect for that at all. I think that people need to find a decent target for their reverence. And a decent target for a reverence would be something like science, something like the wonders of science, and something like humanity um, as a whole, and um, a love of humanity as a whole. So another related thing people worry about is that science only deals with what is, not with what ought to be. So that if we want to make the world a better place and want to say people should act this way, people should act you know, good rather than like Ted Bundy, that science has nothing to say on that question and can't possibly. So how can we really ground our worldview in science if that leaves us in an amoral world? I think academic moral philosophy, although not strictly science, is kind of like science. It's applying, it's using the the systems of logic, of reasoning. You cannot say absolutely what is right and wrong, but you can say if you believe that so-and-so is wrong, then you're being inconsistent if you believe that such-and-such is, or if you believe that so-and-so is right, then in order to be consistent, you ought to believe such and such. And one can apply logic to moral questions. It may be that there are fundamental premises that you can't actually deduce. You have to simply assume them. But once you have done, then much else follows. You can do that by a logical reasoning. Yeah, I, was, I remain convinced by Sam Harris's argument on this point, which is there's nothing cheap about getting an argument off the ground with a brute assumption. That's actually how all of our arguments work, even within science. It's like, at the end of the day, I'm not going to convince you that A equals A. Like, the the law of identity, that's just something you feel in your gut, or you don't. And if you don't, I sort of don't believe you. And I'm not going to argue further, because it actually can't be argued for further. And that doesn't make it any less of an invalid assumption. And if you allow those kinds of assumptions in the domain of morality, like, like Sam Harris's assumption that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, if you allow those kinds of bootstrapping assumptions, you can get a morality every bit as compelling and you know, a morality with teeth every bit as much as you could from religion, from science. Well, yeah, far more than from religion, because if you get it from religion, it's, you get all sorts of horrible things. I mean, if you Nobody, no, no moral person ought to base their morality on the Old Testament, for example, or on the Quran. But as you say, you can start with a, with a, a brute assumption, as, as Sam Harris does. I mean, suffering is bad. And once you've got that assumption, once you've got that axiom, then there's a lot of logical work to be done, working out, therefore, what, what the moral thing to do is, given that you take that assumption. So I've seen some data to suggest that while more secular societies are on average happier than religious societies. Religious people within secular societies are actually the happiest and are happier than secular people in secular societies. I'm curious if, if you have seen that or, or have any opinion in general on the relationship between religion, secular beliefs, and happiness. Yes. Um, the the data, I suppose you're thinking of the data of Gregory Paul on, on or maybe other people like him, on um, different societies which, have, which are religious tend to be less happy. It's t- it t- seems to go with social welfare. 
societies, countries and states within the United States where there's a, a bedrock of social welfare, where people are, are less troubled by poverty, where they have more health care and things are happier and are less likely to be religious. On the other hand, you just raised the point, which I was not aware of, that within happy societies, religious people are likely to be the most happy. I didn't know that. It, that may be related to the uh, idea that religious people are less stressed because less um, fearful, perhaps, or perhaps they, they are less likely to get stress-related diseases, that kind of thing. I have heard that. I'm not, I'm not very persuaded by it. Is the evidence for that good? It's been a long time since I've looked at it, so I can't say with any confidence. All I can remember is that it was provoking some interesting conversations at the time it came out. Well, of course, it, it may be true. Even if it is true, it has no bearing on whether religious beliefs are true, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just an, it, it could be a psychological fact that religious people are happier. I'd be surprised, but then who cares if I'm surprised? I mean, the, the data are, are what matter. There could also be the conflating variable of belonging to a community. You know, All or, sorts or, of possible conflating variables. That's certainly a right. good one, yes. So what have you made of the sort of ubiquity of the concept of a meme now. I mean, this is in, in a strange way, your legacy to people that have no interest in, in science is as the guy who invented the word meme, which is hilarious to me that some people tapped out of your, your other achievements may know you simply through that route. So what have you made of that? Well, meme to me is simply a cultural equivalent of a gene. And so if there is, at the end of the selfish gene, I wanted to make the point that Darwinism works with where there's any kind of self-replicator. And so computer virus would be a good example of a, of a, of a self-replicating entity, which could be a unit of natural selection. And a meme is another example of that, a, a cultural replicator, anything that is imitated, anything that is passed from brain to brain. It could be done verbally could be done pictorially, it could be done in the form of a tune, it could be done in the form of a, a dance step, a clothes fashion, anything like that. If it's self-replicating, if it's imitated, that is by definition self-replicating. What's more interesting is can that serve as a basis for a Darwinian process of selection? By definition, that would be true if certain memes survive better than others because they are more popular or for one reason or another. And I suppose in a sense that's true. Certain tunes are more cashy than others and are more likely to get spread around, that sort of thing. Whether that gives rise to interesting evolution is another matter. It's a third question, I suppose. And I think you could kind of generalize from the idea of a gene complex making very complicated structures like bodies, a meme complex or memeplex, as, it, as it's been called could be something like a, a religion where you have a whole series of mutually compatible, mutually reinforcing memes which go along together. This will all be Greek to the, to the people you mentioned who talk about memes on the internet because they think a meme is, is just a picture with writing on it. And it doesn't, that's not what a meme is at all. Well it, well, it is a sort of subset of a meme, I suppose. I remember reading Susan Blackmore's book on memes. The uh, Meme Machine. Yes, when I was in college. And it was a really attractive idea to me, but it also seemed to me that the analogy to genes could be taken too far um, and maybe was being taken too far because, uh, you know, ultimately, I think what's so incredible 
about Darwinian natural selection, and this really came out in your book, The Blind Watchmaker, is that the appearance of design comes from a process that has no intentions behind it, no conscious intentions, but it, it ends up creating something that looks to us like it could only have been designed by a creator. Whereas you know, meme complexes or memes don't have that character because we, we do create them to begin with. And we, we know we create them at least to, to an extent. So there's no mystery. Yeah. On, on the other hand, if you take something like a religion, it, a religion like Roman Catholicism is a very complicated set of different different components. And it could have been designed. It could be that a whole lot of cardinals got together and, and sat down in conclave and worked out how shall we design our religion. Like, um, oh, that charlatan did who invented um, Scientology. I mean, he literally did sit down and invent it. But I think it's more probable that Roman Catholicism, for example, was not invented by people, but came together possibly in a kind of Darwinian way, possibly certain memes like belief in the sanctity of the Virgin Mary, um, belief in life after death, belief in indulgences you, that you can pay to have to be, be, have time off purgatory and things like that. They were mutually supportive and were favored by a kind of natural selection rather than popes and cardinals in a kind of Machiavellian way, sitting down together and designing them. Now, you seem to be suggesting that they're designed, and maybe you're right, but it's not obvious. I think they could have come about in a kind of Darwinian way. What advice would you give to someone listening to this podcast who is, say, a college student that wants to be a scientist, wants to contribute and advance our collective knowledge of science and you know, admires the contributions you've made? What advice would you give them now, starting out their careers? I hate the advice question. <laughs> I know, I know, it's tough. But. <laughs> well, I think they they must be enthusiastic about it. They they shouldn't do it unless they really, really love it and love truth, and are infinitely curious, are curious about the infinite, curious in, in, curious to push it as far as they can. You have to work hard. I suppose you need to pick your subject carefully. Pick a subject that you're really interested in that you really can excel at. I mean, some people are no good at the sort of higher mathematics they would need to do physics, for example. And so they might be better off choosing another, a less mathematical subject that they could excel at if they're good at, say, fieldwork, something like that. I don't know. I, as I say, I just hate the advice question. I, 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 I don't know what, to say, what to say. Your advice reminds me of Jerry Seinfeld's comment about what he tells up-and-coming comedians that he meets, which is that he tells them all to quit because... He knows the ones that are really meant to be comics and would really be happy doing it won't listen to him. Okay. Yes. On the assumption it's a bit that- like Herb Silverman, who's the, who was an atheist who, who ran for governor of, I think, South Carolina um, with, no intent, with no hope of winning. And when he, he was asked by a, a journalist, um, what would you do if you won? And he would say, I would demand a recount. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure I've been aware of your, if you've made any comment on COVID publicly? Well, it's a, it's a pandemic that could have, we, we could have seen coming. I mean, in a way, we've been lucky not to have had one like it before. 
And maybe it's a wake-up call to expect uh, similar things in the future. I have been horrified by the way it, the attitude to things like vaccination um, have become politicized and the way um, people's attitude to vaccination has become tribal and opposition to vaccination has been a kind of, that's what our people believe. That's what, that's, that's what my people, my tribe believes. That, that's horrifying because it's a purely scientific question. It's possible to disagree about the science. I mean, it's perfectly respectable to say, I've looked at the science and I disagree about, about vaccination. I'd be unlikely, but you could do that. You could do that. But to simply object to vaccination on political tribal grounds is, is awful. I've been very positively impressed by the way science has come forward, has stepped up and has produced vaccines at an astonishing pace. Never have such advances been produced so quickly, so effectively. And um, some of the vaccines that have been produced, uh, the mRNA vaccines, are using a method which is generalizable to other viruses and even to cancer. And so it it's, could be a major benefit, sort of paradoxical silver lining to the COVID pandemic that vaccine developing scientists have, have developed techniques which can be used in future, not just for this virus, but for any other virus that comes along. Uh, because the, the way it's done is generalizable to other viruses and, as I say, even to cancer. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. One of the things that has troubled me during the pandemic is that I think it it has probably diminished the credibility of science in the public eye because our institutions that claim the mantle of science, like the CDC, will often make errors, you know, because partly because I think they're, they're somewhat partisan and they don't want to concede any small fact, you know, to the anti-vaxxers, you know, even if, so, you know, so for example, they, you know, it recently came out in the New York times that they hid a lot of the data during 2021. They didn't release data on the efficacy of vaccines for young people, booster shots in particular, because they didn't show enough efficacy to clearly indicate that it was worth it for, say, a young, healthy person to get a booster shot. And the spokesperson for the CDC admitted that part of the reason we didn't release all the data is because we didn't want it to be misinterpreted as fodder for the anti-vaxxers, essentially. And series of actions like this, I think, has led to a diminishment in the credibility of our flagship scientific uh, institutions such that people are beginning to roll their eyes when they hear the phrase, trust the science. And that's something that worries me because we want people to trust the science. We want our institutions to be worthy of that trust. And as public trust in those institutions goes down, it just makes it harder and harder the next time a pandemic comes for people to sort of trust what, what they're being told. And so I worry about the long-term credibility of science. And I'm curious if that is something you ever think about. That may be an American thing. I, I wasn't aware of that. And I'm rather surprised because to me, I, I thought the effect of the um, pandemic has been rather the reverse, that, that, mm. that rather prestige of science has increased rather than 
decreased. I, I, I didn't know about the particular cases you're talking about. No, that could be. I mean, Europe, Western Europe, from what I've seen, has had a much, a much more rational sort of policy approach to COVID and, and a, le- a, a, a less divided or a less partisan. But it, it sounded to me as though the, um, the sort of mild cover-up you were talking about was, as it were, provoked by the anti-vaxxers. And so it's a kind of byproduct of the political anti-vax movement. They didn't, they, as you said, they didn't want to provide fodder for the anti-vaxxers. And that would never have arisen had the politically motivated anti-vaxxers been on the scene. But still, it's, it's, it's not uh, laudable. I would agree with that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you're right that it was, I mean, there's a huge contingent in America that's simply anti-vax and spreading total misinformation about the safety and efficacy of, of it. But in response, the solution has not been to maintain total transparency. It's been essentially to either lie or, you know, hide the truth in some ways for the public benefit, which I, I, I didn't think, know that. That's, that's okay. That's not good. Well, yeah, but you know, Anthony Fauci has admitted that rather than tell the public exactly the percentage of people that ought to get vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity, he sort of tailored the number to what he thought the public was ready to hear. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, he he's publicly admitted that, and you know, I I don't think that makes these folks evil necessarily. I th- I, I do think they are well, they are bureaucrats with the mixed incentives that they do that they, that politicians will always have partly thinking about the public good and partly thinking about the maintenance of their own status and so forth. But there is this philosophy of not showing the public everything, not letting the public decide for themselves because the masses are too dumb to handle the nuance, essentially. And and I mean, just all of this, I I just raised because, you know, I, I see you as someone that has you know given science a lot of credibility in your lifetime and has been just an extremely effective defender of science against its enemies uh, for for the betterment of humanity and you know I think in, in the long run one of the things we have to worry about is the reputation of science not being tarnished by those who claim its mantle. If it is being tarnished, I would certainly worry about that. Yes. Okay. So. I guess before I let you go, can you discuss at all anything you're working on now that that maybe hasn't seen the light of day yet? I'm working on a book called The Genetic Book of the Dead, which is a book aimed at about the same audience as The Selfish Gene. And the idea is that because animals are all of us, living things are a product of the natural selection of our ancestors information about the environment which selected our ancestors, information about the environment in which our ancestors lived, is in some sense written down in our bodies and in our genes. And so theoretically, it would be possible to take any animal, say an unknown animal, hitherto unknown animal, and read it, read the information in it, read the information in its genes, read out the information about its ancestral way of life, its ancestral environment, and its genes, and the ancestral genes. That's a beautiful concept. I, uh, I'm excited for that book to, to come out. Thank you. Richard Dawkins, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. 
If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.